Hi, I am Philip and welcome to Deep Tech Stories. Not many innovations have the power to shape the world on a massive scale like the internet. However, after the great financial crisis of 2007 and 8, one exactly such innovation came along, the blockchain. In late 2008, a white paper named Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, was mailed out to a cryptographic mailing list and only shortly after, the Bitcoin network went live. Today, 12 years after the first block, the technology is widely known, but yet barely anyone actually understands it. Not so Uli Gunnersdorfer. Uli Gunnersdorfer is a researcher at a technical university in Munich who finished his master thesis in 2016 in precisely that topic and continued his research as a PhD student. He now stands as one of the most regarded blockchain researchers, regularly holding lectures about Bitcoin, why it is actually so safe, and answering questions about the energy dilemma revolving Bitcoin itself. However, to answer those questions, we first need to know what a blockchain actually is. So generally, um, when we talk about blockchain, uh, we have to first understand that there is a lot of cryptography behind it. So I think there are two main uh, cryptographic um, methodologies. So first of all, um, the signature scheme. So you're able to create basically identities for yourself, so so called public keys, and um, have an associate private key. So private key can be somehow similar to a password. And um, this is the starting point for your wallet. So if you have a wallet on your mobile phone, then basically what you have is a private key and an associated public key. And this public key is what gets associated with your funds. So if I want to transfer some Bitcoins to you, you give me your public key and I can send you some Bitcoins over there. And now we have to understand how the network itself manages to, to handle that transaction. And the network itself is highly decentralized. So anyone can spin up their computer, anyone can uh, run a local node, so to say. So a node is a participant in the network. And um, this node connects to the other parties in the network. So there are some kind of seed nodes that allow you to um, um, connect to the network in the beginning. But then afterwards, you're getting introduced to new and new nodes and you get more and more connected in the network. And this network basically ensures that once I announce the transaction to you, so I um, created the transaction that sends you, for example, five Bitcoin, um, this transaction is broadcasted to the network. So anyone um, gets to know that I want to pay you um, five Bitcoin. And with that, somebody will get to know about the transaction, which we can refer to as a miner. And this miner or the old miners are basically responsible for continuing to 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 further um, um, yeah, develop the state of the network. So the state of the network is basically right now I have five Bitcoins, you don't have any Bitcoins. But now we want to change the state to that I don't have any more Bitcoins, but you have five Bitcoins. And... Um, with that, um, these miners take the transaction and include this in the block, and they have to do a lot of computational work to yeah, create a proof of work, so to say. And um, if they have a sufficient um, work done, then this block is again published in the network, 
and anyone can review that and look at that and look at the transactions that are associated in this block and verify that. And um, anytime you see this block and see, okay, that's a good block, I like this block um, looking fine, then you know you have received this uh, five Bitcoin. Generally, these networks or for transactions and for blocks work as a gossip protocol. So anything you receive, you just um, um, yeah, uh, forward it to all your connected nodes so that anyone gets to know about the blocks and the transactions that are new to the system. Okay, so I'm, am I connected to all the nodes in there? Not, direct, not directly, but indirectly. So if you are all operating on the same Bitcoin network, then usually one node connects to 8 to 32 nodes. But overall, overall um, there are some systems that count the nodes and it's assumed it's about 10 to 30,000 nodes in the whole network. Is there any, any sort of time delay then in between? If I go from the most possible furthest away node in between, um, I assume it's probably not completely instantaneous. Yeah, so there is some time delay. There is some research about measuring that, but um, you don't have to forget about that block time. So the time between two blocks is set at approximately 10 minutes. So this is a, a protocol that we cannot really change or that a miner cannot change. Uh, we can talk about that in a second. Um, but given that you have 10 minutes to, to see what has happened in the network, um, that's really that's really sufficient for anyone to get the information. Second of all, um, the people who are really interested in participating in the network in terms of actually mining, in terms of providing computational resources and receiving rewards for that, um, they are interested in to be connected as, as well as possible. So, so they are ensuring that they have um, very good connections to major um, computer centers, to major data centers. So a lot of that infrastructure um, is also in some kind of cloud um, systems and um, they are very well connected to all of these systems because if they wouldn't be that well connected, they would basically just lose money. Okay, so as long as I don't magically end up with a block time of like a second, everything should be fine and, yeah. and dusted. Yeah, pretty much. Now you mentioned um, the miners and the block size. As far as I know, normal financial transactions, let's say via Visa or MasterCard, don't have that block size or generally blocks to begin with or miners. What is the fundamental reason for that in general? So the, the main issue about decentralized networks is to agree up on a state. So um, as you can imagine, if we have two competing states within a network, this can easily be exploited. So for example, I convince one part of the network that um, I paid you five Bitcoin and I have another part of the network where I paid the five Bitcoin to myself. And um, so that's possible. I can create as many public keys as I want just for the sake of example here. And now it's the question which, um, which, which state is going to be the final one. So which state are we going to trust in the end? And um, for that, we need this consensus mechanism. And this consensus mechanism needs to operate on some kind of a data structure. And um, we could operate on single transactions. So that would be possible. There is no technical reason uh, to operate, to not operate on transactions, but the um, 
the good part about blockchain or about the blocks is that we can bundle transactions. So we can say, okay, um, we just inc incorporate um, 500,000, 2,000 transactions to one block, calculate the new state for these transactions, and then propose this as a as a next block. So as you said, as long as we do not have a block time of one second, um, that's not an issue. But if we would have transactions, we would have to need some kind of um, very, very short time delay between these transactions. So therefore we uh, do not uh, really um, uh, do this consensus protocol on a transaction level, but in a block level and the blocks basically just bundle transactions. And the block gets mined by the miner, which as yeah. far as I know is some guy somewhere with a very reasonable, powerful machine that just <laughs> randomly guesses the the outcome of some question. Yeah, so the so the the person or the entity who is mining your block or who is mining the block is a large corporation usually. So um, every 10 minutes a new block gets created and currently 6.25 bitcoins are paid as a reward for this block creation. So 6.25 times 54,000 US dollars, you can imagine yourself, that's a lot of money um, that people receive for creating such blocks. And therefore it also requires a lot of power and a lot of computational power to create these blocks. As you can imagine that, or, or um, our research shows that about 60% of these rewards are actually spent on energy. So, and if you spend 60% um, of, I don't know, uh, 300,000 US dollars um, every 10 minutes, then you know this is not something that happens with your local machine in your private home, but this are, these are large corporations or large, large groups um, who connected together to create these blocks. And when, when solving the, the riddle, or I'm assuming when, some... When, Exactly. So, so, so this is the 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 the, the what, what these miners basically do. They need to solve a so-called hash puzzle. So, hashes is a way of is a, also a cryptographic methodology to basically fingerprint data. So, we can have some data, and um, this data has some unique fingerprint, and um, this fingerprint is very very long. So, we have two hundred fifty six um, uh, bits. Uh, bytes, sorry, 256 bytes. And um, these strings, so to say, this is a, a, a text, let's say that these are like 64 characters or so. And this text has to begin with um, an amount of zeros. So that's the difficulty. And the idea is if um, you are um, equal likely to generate an output, so you cannot really predict what's coming out of your hash function, then um, you need to um, yeah, put an amount in there to generate such a hash function. And what basically is required, we take the block with all its transactions and we add a nonce in there. So a nonce is a number used only once. It's basically a counter. And um, we try for each of these numbers um, to calculate the hash. And we do this so often and change this number so often until a sufficiently small hash comes out with i think 18 leading zeros right now is the um is the amount that is required to propose a valid block 
And further, this difficulty also changes. So in the beginning of the Bitcoin network, there were not, no, not so much computational power, but as the network increases or the network size increases and the computational power increases, also the difficulty of this puzzle increases. So at the beginning, I think it was only 12 zeros and then it increased steadily over time. Okay, then I assume that it's probably rather unlikely that two entities have the same correct answer at the same time. Or how would it so, work if someone would have the same answer at the same time? <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, so this can happen. And this happened in the past very rarely. So this is not something like that happens um, every week or so. I think the last time we have to check two, three years ago. Um it can happen that um, out of pure statistics that two people find the find a a valid answer to their um, solution uh, to their question so to say so as each block is unique in terms of okay um, what transaction are you including and also the block reward so that you are paying out the block reward to yourself and therefore each block is different and then it can happen that two people really find a block at the same time. But this becomes, I think it becomes more and more unlikely as um, the network, the computational power in the network grows. Okay. And what happens then, so, so that's, that was your question. Um, the, what, what happens, so basically um, the situation I just told you in terms of we have two um, conflicting states in the network and the, Bitcoin blockchain is not really does not really care about that because there is will be a con, a next block. There will be a block building up on each of these or, or of one of these two realities, and so the longest chain itself will will prevail, and the block that has not been included in the longest chain will be so to say orphaned, and the transactions that are in there are considered as they would have never existed. So um, if a transaction is in there from you, for example, then it will get included in the later block. So no worry about losing money or um, losing that transaction. That's just a temporarily hiccup in the blockchain network, which will resolve itself when new blocks are proposed. Okay. So I have some, I mean, obviously there can't be a block created at precisely the same time, but that time frame plus the, the translation speed yeah. in the network. And then when I have the next block, yeah. everything is fine and dandy again yeah because you have no general notion of time in a network so you cannot really decide um, on a global level which of the two blocks occurred first but you can only decide it on a local level in terms of okay which block have i heard of first and you're usually building on top of that but if you hear of a longer chain that has another block um, then you just incorporate it and now we've talked about the, the proof of work algorithm, which is currently used for, well, for Bitcoin and for Ethereum. Now Ethereum, as far as I know, has been announced for quite some time now to change to proof of stake. Yeah. Where I have my funds and the funds do the work if I have a note exactly. for that or I, I pool it with someone. That obviously that should reduce the, the computational load in terms of emission and, and electricity requirement. But how do I then still securely create new blocks without just running away and creating my own infinitely long blockchain yeah so that's a very good question you have to you have to think about um what is the what is the computational power why do we require computational power and the reason for that is the so-called 
the so-called uh, Sybil resistance. So you wanna, you don't wanna be able to have some entity who can just um, create infinite, infinite amount of blocks, as you said. And therefore, we need some kind of scarce resource. We need some resource that is limited. So if I start my computer, I have uh, one computational power of my <laughs> PC, so to say. Um, but I cannot really fake that it ha that I have five or ten or one hundred computers here. I have to buy them. I have to invest in them. I have to pay the uh, energy consumption for them. I have to set them up correctly and so on and so forth. So this is the investment I have to make to be able to um, yeah to have these um, this uh, computational resource. And from a theoretical point of view, uh, people said, okay, why do we have to have this? investment first in hardware and then use this hardware to actually run the network why can we just use the money in, as, as as the scarce resource itself and this is where they came up with the proof of stake system so the, the yeah competitor to proof of work um in which you um, are required to lock in your funds for some time and by locking these funds in, um, you are allowed to propose new blocks. And um, the system itself is designed in such a way that it also discourages you from proposing invalid blocks. So if you would propose invalid or conflicting blocks, then it would basically slash your money or take the money that you have put into the system away from you. So um, this this ensures that the network runs safely that the blocks are produced at a steady rate um, but ensures at the same time that there is no energy requirement such as proof of work in bitcoin but the the block proposal then still happens via randomly guessing a solution to a to a problem or how do i propose a new block if i have my funds somewhere locked up that really um, differs from system to system. So proof of stake is something that has been in development since 2014. And there are many um, solutions out there. Um, for example, some combined proof of work and proof of stake. But for Ethereum 2.0, I cannot really answer this question right okay. now. Now, obviously, there has been quite some talk already about the, the whole emission problem. And you've shared an article where a German newspaper, uh, Spiegel, interviewed you about the uh, emission problem. Unfortunately, that art article is yeah. behind a paywall. Um, <laughs> at the same time, Google Scholar provides with uh, the respective scientific article behind it, um, where you analyzed really the, the energy consumption up until the year 2100 based on different climate change and energy production changes up until 250 or 240. Obviously, I've only scanned through it quickly. So I'm, I'm not an expert <laughs> on your own paper. You're probably much better. Um, can you elaborate on, on everything? <laughs> yeah, so, so um, what you are um, talking about right now is a preprint that is actually in uh, submission at a journal right now. And uh, we are still waiting for the response there. So it, it cannot be considered as a um, officially peer-reviewed uh, scientific article right now. And But we have previously been publishing um, 
uh, articles about the carbon footprint and the energy consumption of Bitcoin and other uh, cryptocurrencies. So our first work in 2019 was about the carbon footprint of Bitcoin. 2020, we um, thought about the energy consumption of alternative um, cryptocurrencies such as Ethereum, which also apply proof of work. And the latest piece is to um, yeah, to, to um, guess or to build a model to estimate the energy consumption and the carbon footprint of Bitcoin up until the year 2100. So I think um, when we talk about this, this so this is a, a huge research area and there's so much going on. And I'm, um, I think we should first start start to talk about why what is what is the complexity of estimating the energy um, in such a system and because i think that's the interesting part to understand okay how do we um, how do science or how do researchers come up with these numbers and the there are two methods basically that are applied here the first part is there is some kind of a, a top-down approach as i just outlined so we just calculate the money that people are um, are earning through mining and assuming a certain per percentage as a energy cost so to say and this is something like the 60 percent it's a very straightforward way in calculating the energy consumption if you assume some kind of electricity price for example five cents per kilowatt hour what we do in our research is we use a um, bottom-up approach so we don't think that these economic models are um, that precise and therefore we decided to understand how the hash rate of the network so we can exactly measure or we can calculate the hash rate that um, is required to propose every 10 minutes a block so that's, that's a, a figure you can easily calculate and we think about how this hash rate um, what what kind of machines do you need to actually provide this hash rate and what we did is we looked at IPO filings of three major um, hardware manufacturers and um, understood how, how much hardware they sold. And by this, we could estimate the shares of the respective machines and could assume or could, could calculate some kind of energy demand that these machines would, yeah, would, would have if they run in the network. And uh, with such um, bottom-up approaches, you're able to have some more precise estimates than just assuming that some certain share of uh, earnings is put into the energy system. And then for the projection into the future, you assume the same division between the, the manufacturers, or yeah, for this for this system for for the um, this so this this methodology we used in 2019. And um, now for the estimation into the future, this obviously cannot cannot hold anymore. So um, if you want to uh, take a look into the future, um, assuming uh, current hardware distributions is very difficult because these machines become obsolete so fast. So um, if we look at 2018, the machines that have been produced in 2018, they are not in use anymore. So we cannot really cannot really think about that. Um, what we took took a look at was the mining rewards and the transaction fees of Bitcoin. The um, problem is in Bitcoin, or um, not, maybe not a problem, but in Bitcoin itself is limited to one, 21 million single units. So there are only 21 million Bitcoins. 
And that means that this block reward that I previously mentioned with the 6.25 Bitcoin halves every roughly every four years. And with that also um, the miners itself do earn less Bitcoin. So um, in four years, the reward will only be three point something. And um, the miners, if the price does not double at the same time, um, then uh, would earn less money. And what we assumed is that Bitcoin behaves from a price perspective similar to gold. So we took a look at gold and uh, took understood how gold looks in terms of how does the price fluctuate, how does the price increase over the last 30, 40 years and assumed the same for Bitcoin because um, we see Bitcoin as a store of value or a lot of people see Bitcoin as a store of value and therefore invest in it similar to gold. And um, with that, we are able to estimate the rewards that miners um, um, earn and uh, we can assume with the 60% um, economic model we can predict this in the future. Obviously this is a lot harder or it is a lot more imprecise than some kind of um, bottom-up approach but this can give you some range within um, you can assume the energy consumption um, yeah, will take place. Okay and according to that preprint everything is uh, nice and fine if we actually manage to become klima neutral until 2050 with a big if in front yeah so <laughs> I, I think that's the i think that's the main the main issue with all these discussions going on so i talked to the last weekend to people who were worried about um so this is an upcoming topic this crypto art nfts non-fungible tokens they were worried about the energy consumption of these kind of crypto tokens um, people are worried about Bitcoin, people are worried about Ethereum. Um, the main issue I really see is not the energy consumption, but how we are as a society are not able to um, have energy uh, sources which are carbon neutral. Yeah, but that's a, a whole different topic to get in. Maybe maybe some other day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, you mentioned that um, at the current point, Bitcoin is viewed as a store of value like gold. Now, anyone who has actually invested and knows the, the stock to flow model now has a little dollar signs in his eyes. <laughs> and Bitcoin has gone through this, as physicists like to, like to call it, uh, phase transitions over time. So it went from this, I use it to buy my drug money um, kind of thing to uh, the idea of using it to pay for things and now to the whole store value part. At the same time, in 2015, if I remember correctly, Ethereum came along with the whole smart contract thing, which expands the whole idea of decentralized networks. In my naive imagination, smart contracts are really just a normal contract, but kind of automatically and secure, and I don't need a, a notary at the same time to, to check everything. Is that naive imagination correct, or am I misunderstanding something inherently wrong? Um, so... The, there is a there is a famous saying um, that smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts <laughs> within the within the blockchain community, and um, I think also the um, the inventor of the or the, the person who have coined this term 
Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, I think he mentioned in a tweet in 2019 that he's he's um, angry at himself for naming these um, yeah these systems or these programs as uh, labeling as them as smart contracts, and um, I I agree to I agree with him to a certain extent because smart contracts are itself um, how I define them are programs immutable programs so. Um, you can imagine them as a regular software you write you install them on the blockchain and uh, with that um, they become executable and um, they behave in a sense as you program them so they are not controlled by anyone but only by the code and as you um, design the code you can also decide how um, this code behaves when you execute it and i think what what um, what most people don't understand or what, what most people do not know about smart contracts is it more of a it's more of an abstraction of the application layer of the blockchain so the problem we had in 2014-2013 is that the bitcoin blockchain was mature enough and a lot of people wanted to build systems with blockchain and people started to spawn their own blockchains and say, okay, we're using this blockchain only for, I don't know, a land registry. We want, or we want to do some kind of name system on top of a blockchain. And so uh, hundreds and thousands of blockchains have spawned there, but they are individually not really able to sustain themselves because you need some kind of ecosystem for them. You need to have some kind of... Um, you need some exchanges which change your coins for dollars and so on and so forth. And um, Vitalik had the idea to basically abstract the use case, so be it Bitcoin as a um, digital cash or be it some kind of land registry or some insurance company or some, you name it. Um, instead of having these as, as separate blockchains, he wanted to incorporate them in one blockchain and abstract the functionality and the functionality you can now use you can or, or you want to have you can put this in a smart contract and execute the smart contract and have the functionality you want secured by the ethereum blockchain by the underlying ethereum blockchain so that's the that's the core part of this smart contract idea abstracting the use case from the core ledger so to say and from that a smart contract basically behaves as a or it looks in the ethereum world as a regular account so it has an address you can send money to it and uh, on top of that you can interact with it so you're able to say um, please execute this function in here and the smart contract does so and depending on what you have coded or what you are putting in there maybe the um, smart contract can pay out funds or some any any functionality that you're really interested in and that then, at least for this year and beginning of last year, gave rise to the whole DeFi, so the decentralized finance part, which kind of leads over to the whole usability problem you also mentioned somewhere else, that it's quite hard for the normal citizen to get a hold of what you actually have to do to be able to, to participate in everything. So you have to sign up, do your whole know your customer thing, send the money over with the money, buy whatever you want. Then you have Ethereum. Ethereum you can send over to your wallet and then the wallet you sign up for Uniswap and then you can do all sorts of shenanigans. Has there been yeah. any 
exactly any progress in that in the last year since you since I know you talked about it last time um from a usability perspective or you mean from a general um uh, from a usability perspective ecosystem perspective yeah so the usability perspective is still a front that is largely untackled un un i see so obviously there is a lot of things are going on and people are trying to enhance the usability of um of the of the system but it really is not suitable for a i would say for an average user who says okay i'm able to work with word and excel and i know how to send an email the experience with cryptocurrencies is whole a whole different and we have so much issues in terms of um alone with the idea of keeping your keeping your private key private so to say okay i have a I have a, a, a file on my computer I need to keep it secure or on my phone. And if I lose it or if anyone else gets it, then basically all the money or all the tokens that is associated with this address is basically gone. So um, people rely on, I forgot my password so much. Um, we have so much problems with the... Um, with the exchanges in terms of that exchanges try to communicate to you and say okay please be careful what are you doing with the money where are you sending your money and um, how we can receive funds for you so for example there is a, a famous example of some rapper i forgot his name he wanted a there's a there's a system on ethereum it's called the ethereum name service and the service allows you to register domains so for example just as google.com you can register some kind of um, i don't know uli.eth and <laughs> some user registered this domain for this wrapper and he sent this um, domain to the wrapper so the the ownership rights so to say were sent to this wrapper and uh, what did the what did this guy do he did not create his own wallet he did not create a um, he, he didn't manage his own keys but he just um put the deposit address of Coinbase, so the exchange that he was registered with, said, okay, you can send anything here, so to say. And obviously Coinbase is not able to uh, process this um, ENS, this name service system. And now this domain is lost, it's gone. And we have to wait until I think two years until this domain gets free again, but there is no one, there is no one that can actually help. And I think that's that's um, that really that is a beautiful example of why the space is from a usability perspective so yeah so bad and um, a lot of people who are interested in the system who and who has who have high stakes said okay they invested a lot of money or they earned a lot of money through speculation they want to go to Uniswap and so on and so forth um, all these people have a high incentive to actually understand what they are doing so they don't uh, lose their money but um, for the average user who says okay i have 50 dollars there is so much mistake and so much danger to losing these funds and um, from the perspective of usability i don't think it has changed much in the last year okay and there will also no probably no be no change be in the next few years ish I mean, it is quite the, the technical topic, yeah, so, so it's rather unlikely that anything will change in the future. 
Yeah, so what I believe is that we see come some kind of change in terms of, okay, if, if my bank now would accept Bitcoin or if my bank would be able to say, okay, we are managing the Bitcoins for you, um, then I think there is some kind of change, um, but it also comes with a cost, with the cost of having some kind of intermediary, having some kind of entity that manages that for you. And it's obviously a, a risk to your, to your system. Yeah, and in the end, the, the third party is kind of the, the opposite of what you want in a decentralized system that you rely on. Yeah, exactly. Now, with the whole the usability, usually only comes with maturity in the whole whole space, and usually, as far as I could see, yeah. the same happens with research. So, research only or lectures on research usually only happen when the space has been <laughs> mature enough and been around for a few years. And I've been wondering. You finished your master thesis in 2016, so quite far ahead of, of anyone. And that kind of begs the question on why was there even a master thesis to begin with in that specific topic? And why you ultimately decided on continuing research instead of doing some company in the space? Yeah, so the, the, the question about the master thesis was, was highly interesting. Um, so I think some people will hate me for what I'm saying right now, but I selected my uh, thesis supervisor um, because of sympathy. So I thought um, this is some kind of area I want to work in. It was software engineering. And I knew that I can work with this person very well. I knew him beforehand from a other course. And um, yeah, we um, we discussed several topics and um, he has a lot of background in natural language processing. So he did a lot of research on how um, do people read contracts or how can computer read contracts, also legal contracts. Um, and um, the question arised, okay, now there is some kind of paradigm um, that we read somewhere about and it's called smart contracts. And we had we had both no idea about what this is about what this thing is about what this blockchain we had absolutely no idea, and said okay um, let's let's understand how smart contracts can um, yeah facilitate legal contracts or how how do they uh, do they pose a danger to legal contracts and how will the future look like in that regard, and with that question in mind we started the master thesis, and quickly I. Yeah, took took the deep dive into blockchain and Bitcoin and Ethereum and smart contract and all the associated um, technologies there. And um, yeah, I think after two weeks or four weeks, we were full, fully, fully in the topic. And yeah, uh, uh, was totally hyped and totally flashed by all these concepts and about these ideas and what is going on there and this really this really made the decision for me to continue in this area so much easier because um, I have been doing multiple things at the university and I saw a lot of stuff in IT um, but uh, it really really where I had the most fun and I was most um, yeah intrigued as really was really the decentralized systems part and then based on that like was there any any notion of going into the industry in the whole crypto scene at all or just straight from master to to phd without any any further consideration so i started my master thesis in 2016 and i actually finished in 2017 and then i think i had two or three months of free time before i started my dissertation or my phd 
Um, I, I thought about going into the industry, um, but the, the main issue for me was to be able to um, yeah, produce some kind of billable income or produce some kind of results that were that could could create money, so to say. And for me, um, I wanted to better understand what was going on in the technology and I wanted to understand um, how these systems work, how um, we can support the systems, how these systems can support business processes, for example. And uh, for that, I thought research was the um, the bad idea. And I, I really liked the university setting. I liked working with students or um, I, I, I liked being a student myself. And I thought it would be a good idea to, yeah, so to say, switch switch the sides of the table and um, yeah, work on the other side. And that really was my was a was such a um, I was so, so such so, so lucky to to have this kind of um, support at the university. So being able as a PhD student to create your own lectures, um, I think that is not very not very often. So this happens very rarely, and. Um, the the people I got to know and the networks I got connected to and also the yeah the the getting yeah getting some kind of publicity um in this whole community and over this community so as you mentioned the Spiegel article for example this is something that wouldn't really have happened I think if I directly would join uh, would have joined um and the, the industry and right now I have my network I have my I have many students and if, um, after the university, I um, wanna wanna kick something off in the blockchain space. I think there are a lot of people who um, I'm, yeah, who I could collaborate with or who I could work with. You mentioned the uh, the business space, the impact on it. Um, there was also a possibly preprint or actual peer reviewed paper by now about the uh, the smart contracts in in legal space. Um, and I saw something on LinkedIn a while ago which kind of went viral-ish in the German space, that someone just posted a picture of a, of a flowchart and the top of the flowchart said, doing the blockchain, and then arrow pointing down just said, no. <laughs> um, so haven't there been any, has there been any interest from, from the public sector about what's going on or nothing at all so far? So we see a lot of discussion. Um, so, so So the problem of, finding a good bit of a good blockchain use case is i think that's um prevalent since 2016 since i started working on this topic a lot of people discuss use cases that from my point of view do not really make sense so that happens um until now but we see use cases kicking off um for example in the in the education sector so the um, IHK in uh, Munich in Bavaria, they started uh, working on a or, or they did, did not did not start working. They um, built and finalized a prototype a blockchain where they are allowed to um, issue their own certificates. So the IHK is basically giving a lot of certificates for handyman and so on, and um, they can now issue and verify these certificates um, using a blockchain, for example. Um, this is for this is one one example that the public administration actually has an interest in. And for example, also the um, 
the state minister for di digitalization in Bavaria, they also have kicked off an institution called the BC Squared, the blockchains, the, the Bavarian Center for Blockchain Competence. And they are all really working on getting the technology um, yeah, more in use, more used in the public sector. But still, we are in a very, very early, early stage in that regard. And I think from my personal opinion, I think um, blockchain has a lot of advantages, especially in the financial sector. So as you said, decentralized finance, uh, lending protocols, um, these kind of things. I think this is something that really, um, really will have a future. Yeah, I'm quite surprised, actually, because I mean, coming from Bavaria, from very rural Bavaria, I did not expect um, anything to be happening, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, you wouldn't expect this from uh, from the, the, the CSU, the, um, the, the state party, so to say. Um, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm also very surprised and I'm, I'm very surprised um, the the um, the community is there. And also um, Munich has a lot of big enterprises and in industries um, which are interested in. So a lot of big insurance companies, uh, automotive um, manufacturers and so on and so forth. And they are all actively dipping their fingers into the technology. How many of them are, well, how many are of them sending their the engineers to go through the, through your lecture series that you created? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I actually don't know because we um, made this um, open source so anyone can use it and we put it on GitHub. But um, at the same time, we are running a program at the Tum Institute for Lifelong Learning. And this is a institution basically that comes from this, yeah, or that offers these MBA programs. And we have a five ECTS course for managers called um, Certified Blockchain and Distributed Ledger Technology Manager. And um, this is a fully booked course um, every, every half year where we are also... Um, um, uh, where where, is a where where are discussions going on with big enterprises if they can book this course solely for them and so on and so forth. So this is really, um, especially in the educational perspective, uh, we see currently a lot of demand. Yeah. No, it's just I have this very old school Bavarian image in my head. Yeah, and it's it's still it still is true in some regard. But um, and I think there are also a lot of other countries of, or or towns, uh, Berlin, for example, that are ahead of us. But um, Munich is, uh, yeah, some a good example, I think. Now to get back to, uh, so you mentioned that you had a deep dive within two or four weeks of everything Bitcoin and smart contracts and probably also went through the code. Oh, well, you, you definitely went through the code. And <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that when you, or you mentioned in another interview, that when you went through the code, there were a few parts in there that confused you because they were solved too complex. And then later on, you noticed why they were solved that complexity or that they go gave rise to a certain idea like smart contracts. Can you explain what those particular design choices were? Yeah. So um, there is one concept in there. Um, it's called the transaction-based ledger and Bitcoin script. So I told you beforehand that um, if I send you five Bitcoins, I send this to your public key. This is not entirely correct. I actually 
um, send it to a small piece of code that requires you to provide some information. So it basically does not say um, this public key gets it, but it's um, the person who is able to um, provide a signature for this is able to retrieve the money. And the transaction-based ledger is so to say the, the way that Bitcoin stores um, these yeah these programs and with this Bitcoin script you can achieve incredible complexity so Bitcoin script you could so for simplicity if we would just want to use the public key we could just really say okay we have some kind of column we store the public key in there and then you're fine but um, for example a concept arose with this Bitcoin script called n out of m multi-signature so um, you require, for example, three out of five um, signatures to spend some money. So, for example, you could imagine you are you are the CEO of a company and um, or you own a company and you own this company together with another party or with two other parties, and you want you want that no one is able to spend the money um, just on its own, but that people have to collectively agree on that. And it doesn't really matter the two out of the three signatures, which of these two out of three signatures are actually there. And this is some kind of concept that is not really known to some kind of banking or that you have a hard time um, discussing with your local <laughs> bank to, to establish that. And um, with this multi-signature wallets, there are so many crazy ideas starting from that. So for example, um, the idea of a payment channel. So imagine following scenario. So you are a local newspaper and I want to read articles with you. I don't want to register the, I don't want to pay the whole, um, uh, the whole magazine. I just want to read single articles. And now we can agree that I pay you 10 cents for an article. And um, with that, um, if we would issue um, every time a transaction on the blockchain, it would take enormous, um, um, it wouldn't just make sense because of the transaction fees, the network gets congested and so on and so forth. So what we can do is we can create a multi-signature wallet where I pay in like um, one Bitcoin and um, I sign, so to say, an agreement that I'm willing to pay you 10 cents, 20 cents, 30 cents and so on for each article you provide me. And this commitment that you receive from me, you can cash this in on the blockchain anytime you want so i cannot cash in the money because i require a signature but i give you for every article i read i give you signatures and with that we're basically able to say okay i don't know how much um, articles i'm going to read but with that we can basically um, put the transactions these multiple transactions into one single transaction and to to top it all up this is the basis of layer two. So this is the basis for putting money off the blockchain, inserting this into new mechanisms, into new systems that allow you to actually transfer money securely, trustless, without any third party and without talking to the blockchain and without incurring the, the boundaries of the blockchain, so to say, um, you're not limited transactions fee, you do not require to um, write this down to the blockchain, so to say, and um, congest the network.
And this is some kind of where I thought, okay, what is this complexity of this transaction-based ledger and why did they do this and Bitcoin script, what a waste of complexity. And then it clicked and I understood, okay, this is really the, the basis for for entire new networks, just because someone said, okay, let's, let's parameterize this a little bit um, because we could use it later on. And this is really the, this is really a, a truly beautiful solution. And that's then the, uh, the lightning ne network in the case of, of Bitcoin. Exactly. That's the, that's the bootstrapping of the lightning network. If someone would have said, okay, fuck Bitcoin script, we don't need that. Um, then there wouldn't be a lightning network. Nope. Yeah. So <laughs> that's really, and, um, this rabbit hole is so, so deep and so crazy and what's going on and what people are talking about. And this is what I really like about the space that you, um, even me, I'm working for four years full time on blockchain of crypto that there is every day I wake up and I'm certain that I will see something, some new ideas, some new concept that you have never seen before. I will come back to that after the next question. <laughs> <laughs> so if I, if I have my layer two and I can send funds back and forth um, between certain certain private keys, certain accounts, without having to bother the actual blockchain, how do I keep up with everything? How how does the blockchain know what happened, and how does everyone else know what happened? So basically, what you're doing is you're when you're creating, uh, when you're using Lightning, for example. Um, and I have to say, I'm, I'm not an expert on Lightning Network yet. This is a complete own world that I have not the chance to dive in that deep. Um, but basically what you do is you lock in your funds in this multi-sig, in, in, in this, in this contracts, in this, um, payment channels. And for the blockchain itself, all the funds, um, are locked and cannot be used otherwise. Um, and this opens up. So when you lock the money, this opens up this payment channel. And um, with this payment channel, you can send funds, you can receive funds. And there are two potential ways to close these funds. Either someone, some party is malicious and tries to somehow tamper with the transaction, so to say. Mm. Um, then other parties can say, okay, that's it. We're closing this um, payment channel. I don't trust you anymore. Go back to the blockchain and the blockchain, basically the, the issue is resolved and the funds are... Um, given to the to the yeah so to say the, the the rightful owner or if um you say okay i'm 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 done with the system i just want to get back to the blockchain then you can just close it on your own and um, take the money that you have received in the meantime in there um, but the blockchain doesn't really need to keep up because when the payment channel is closed then the state so to say is resolved on the blockchain okay so as long as the the channel is open i can do well not whatever i want but it doesn't bother the blockchain and then in the end the moment i, I close the channel everything is updated and everything everyone knows about it exactly doesn't bother the blockchain now back to before <laughs> you said that every every day you get up and you can be sure that something mad is gonna come across you how, how do you then decide on your your paper topics, the hypothesis that you want to pursue? Yeah, that's a very good question. So obviously you have um, the ability to work on short-term ideas. Um, so I have the capability to supervise students. I am able to um, give out topics to master students. 
and um, this is something that I really enjoyed um, over the last years, having some small ideas um, and giving them to to some to some students. Um, for obviously, when you conduct a PhD or you want to write your dissertation, then you have to think about a long term uh, long term um, uh, goal you you are working towards. And uh, for me, um, it has to do, or for my dissertation topic, it was all about identity management and how can we sh ensure that a public key is actually belonging to the legal entity we are thinking about. And I found some kind of niche in there. Uh, so basically there is a lot of unresearched areas in the blockchain, yeah, scientific area, so to say. And um, I found my niche there and decided to say, okay, this is where I'm going to work on and um, where I'm also quite certain that the amount of other people working on that area is not that high so that you won't get um, outrun, so to say. But this has happened. So we had some paper ideas. I had master thesis aligned where I said, okay, I want to I wanna understand that concept. I want to find some metric. I want to find some methodology. And um, we started discussing with the students. And uh, a month later, we have some kind of preprint in my email, uh, my inbox, where I see, okay, damn, someone else has uh, been faster than us. That especially really happens when you have um, yeah, some some high demand areas or where the ideas. So so that yeah. was my case where the idea was really at hand, and it was basically kind okay someone has to do it and um, yeah they were faster than it's us. The least sign of you're not in the wrong research area. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you always have to see it from yes. a positive perspective, and that also uh, that's also um, I think. Um, I connected to the researchers and they are all, so I think this is this also a research community where people are very nice and are happy to share their ideas and talk about how you can collaborate. So I think there's always some kind of um, positivity there. Besides you guys in Munich, is there anyone else that you find particularly notable in the whole research space? Oh, there are plenty. So um, from a, from a, from a research output perspective, I, I think that you Munich is not that big in the system. Um, but for example, there is, um, there are, um, for example, Uni Innsbruck, very strong. Um, they have a, a very, uh, very high valued professor, Rainer Böhme, um, who has a lot of output in this area. Um, but also I would say there are so many universities and it really depends on what you are exactly looking at. So for example, Professor Philipp Sandner, who's a um, famously cited in, 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 in German newspapers, uh, is an economics professor at um, the Frankfurt Business School. Um, and, but if you look at, for example, at cryptography, um, you have to take a look at, for example, Stanford. Um, but there are so many, so many high value universities um, that's 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 really insane yeah okay but you just type in something to google scholar and see what pops up <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for for being with me then thank you for the invitation see you in in munich the next time uh, we are allowed to to travel looking forward to that hi philip here before you leave i just wanted to thank you for listening and i hope you learned something in this episode if that is the case why not message me at philip at deeptechstories.io? 
I'm always curious about what he took away and look forward to a discussion with you. That is P-H-I-L-I-P-P at deeptechstories.io. It would also help me out a great deal if you could recommend the episode to a friend of yours that might find it interesting as well. See you again next time when I talk with Robert Schmidt about the next revolution in agriculture, precision farming.